God bless everybody. Isn't worship sweet? Just love worshiping the Lord. You open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As we continue to speak about some church dynamics, what makes church life? What makes us a family? Uh, that's what we are. What makes us a body? What makes us the bride of Christ? We've been going through some different elements of the Christian faith that the Bible points to. Over the weeks we spoke about unity. We've been speaking about communion because communion is really the quintessential uh, gathering for uh, unity. It promotes unity. It exemplifies unity. Uh, really the communion table is where believers come together from extreme diverse backgrounds but with the commonality that we are sinners in need of salvation, which we found in the blood of Jesus Christ. So how important it is to look at unity from different aspects. And I've been enjoying studying out communion. Uh, I've done it in the past, but it seems the older I get in the Lord, uh, the sweeter communion is actually becoming to me personally. And, and prayerfully it is to you. And we're going to speak about that dynamic either today or next week, why it becomes sweeter as we grow older in the Lord. We will just want to review from last week. Last week we spoke about communion more from a technical standpoint. We, we looked at some of the technicalities of communion. We spoke about how the bread actually was resembled uh, or was a... a Analogous of the broken body. And the broken body was the sacrifice. And the sacrifice was the shed blood. And the shed blood equals the new covenant. And the new covenant equals forgiveness. And not just any forgiveness, but a, a once and for all forgiveness where God actually remembers our sins no more. It's a perfect atonement. It's a perfect broken body. It's a perfect blood that perfectly cleanses our conscience from dead works and cleanses us from all sin. We're actually forgiven. And that God sees us in a whole different paradigm. He doesn't see us as sinners. He truly sees us as adopted sons and daughters. He sees us as righteous. He embraces us as righteous. He deals with us differently. He doesn't deal with us as wayward creation. He deals with us as His children. Everything God does towards us through the new covenant is from a fatherly perspective. God is not judge anymore. He is truly our Father. Baptism we spoke about. Now baptism is it's initiation into the family of God. Baptism we say, I believe. I truly believe Christ is God. I believe He died for my sins. And when He rose, He rose for my justification. And now I have a new life in Christ. I'm, I'm repenting of my sins. I'm embracing Christ. I'm embracing the kingdom of God. I want to be a living sacrifice. I'm, I want to put my sins behind me. I want to put my worldliness behind me. I want to be water baptized. I want, to, I want the world to know that I am a self-professed disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. I'm making a conscious choice to follow Christ as my Lord and my Savior. That is baptism. Communion, the second and the second sacrament of the church, is likewise similar. It it restates that it reaffirms that I am a believer. Every time we come together 
to the table, the sacred supper, what we're saying is like, I still believe. I'm still a believer. I'm still a disciple. I'm still putting away sin. I'm still leaning on grace. I'm still depending on Christ. I'm, I'm a child of God. I'm a brother and I'm a sister to everybody else around me. That's communion. Communion is a means of grace. In communion, God really does strengthen us. God is doing something in the communion service. We spoke about what it is not. We spoke that it's not transubstantiation the way Roman Catholicism teaches it as it actually becomes the body and the blood of Christ. That the elements change. It, it, it ceases to be bread and actually becomes the body. It ceases to be wine and actually becomes blood. Uh, we don't adhere to that type of mystery. Uh, but neither do we follow Luther on this either, which is consubstantiation. And that's... It becomes a type of blood. It becomes a type of body of Christ. It's still bread and it's still wine, but yet at the same time there's a mystery that it still possesses some qualities of the body and the blood of Christ. We, we can't hold on to that. And we don't hold on to the memorial view that it's just a memorial. We get together and it's sort of, it's a nice thing to do and it's sort of like foundational, the body and the blood of Christ, the crucifixion and all that kind of stuff. We don't, we don't see it as a memorial. We hold to a strict reform understanding on this that it is really a means of grace and that in the service, in the communion service, in the partaking of the elements, there is grace from God. And what it is though, it's what we spoke about last week, one of the dynamics of Christianity. Please don't, don't forget this. One of the spiritual dynamics and spiritual principles of Christianity is hearing with faith. And responding with faith. So communion is not just an audible, it is a visual representation of what Christ did for us. Which is something that God wants us never, ever, ever to forget. As he says, do this in remembrance of me. We all remember things, don't we? Some things I wish I could forget. They seem to haunt me. But we all remember things. If there's a first place of remembrance in our mind, it should be what Christ has done for us. Nothing else. My sin should not have taken first place of what Christ has done for me. What I used to do before I came to Christ is not first place over what Christ has done for me. I remember Christ's sacrifice first and foremost over everything. That's something the Holy Spirit brings more and more into our heart as we grow in Christ. But there is a blessing associated to it. And we spoke about it last week how, you know, when we get too familiar with a thing and we can just go through some kind of mechanical process, it can really, we can devalue communion. And we spoke about it last week how all of us have to throw ourselves over communion and never fall into its communion. How we have to guard ourselves, we're going to look at that tonight, we have to guard ourselves to ever thinking this is just a ritual. And I can tell you right now that communion is not the same to all people. It's just not. And I'm going to speak out of Luke chapter 7 next week. 
And you know the story of uh, the Pharisee that invited Jesus over to his house to eat, and Jesus came, and the Pharisee didn't give him no oil for his head, didn't wash his feet, gave him no water. And, but there was a woman there, a notorious sinner, who was constantly crying over his feet, and wiping his feet with her hair, and anointing his feet with perfume. And what's the story? Those who are forgiven much, love much. You see, Christ is not the same to everybody. When you're forgiven, and you know what you're forgiven for, Christ is everything. Communion is not the same to all, because all don't come to Christ with a brokenness. But it's something as Christians, we'll speak about next week, we should all be growing into more and more, because we're all notorious sinners. That woman represents all of us in our filthiness without Christ. We'll speak about that next week. But I want to go to the text tonight. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a familiar one, excuse me. <coughs> Starting in the 17th verse, listen to Paul. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you or other translations say, I do not praise you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, it's actually for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another one gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? And humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you or praise you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then so eat the bread and drink the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged by God. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Verse 33. And so, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, like always, for your word. Constantly challenging us, but at the same time, constantly liberating us from ourselves, Father. God, come and liberate us from ourselves. Come and liberate us, Father God, from anything that offends you. Anything that weakens us, Father God. Anything that's not praiseworthy in us. Come, Lord Jesus, 
and set the captive free we ask, Father God. Breathe upon this text, Father God. Let it live inside your people, Father God. Let us be a people that understand this text, Father God. Let us be people of communion. Let us be people of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. We have here a story of a communion supper gone wrong. What should have naturally brought the praise of Paul for their mutual edifying love uh, of gathering, which is supposed to be for the better, where Christians come together and they, they commune around a community table and they have fellowship, a sort of potluck dinner, it's not for their better. It's actually for the worse. And it only brings the scathing rebuke for their misconduct, which led to the worse and not for the better from Paul. Paul speaks about the antidote, and that's a proper understanding of communion, with the chilling revelation that God presides over the communion table, willing, able to discipline, not condemn, all who come unworthily, listen, in attitude, by not discerning the body of Jesus Christ. Now understand this. Before I'll explain it now, and I'll explain it at the end before we take communion. Unworthily manner is different than being unworthy. An unworthily manner is an attitude, a nonchalant approach to the whole thing. Let me give you an example that Jesus actually gives. And maybe this will give you some understanding. When Jesus was going to wash the disciples' feet, what did Peter tell him? Not me, Lord. May it never be that my Lord washes my feet. What did Jesus tell him? If I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no place with me. Then, of course, presumptuous Peter, wash my whole body, Lord. you got to get a kick out of Peter. And what does Jesus tell him? He who has already bathed, does not need to bathe again just to wash his feet. And he's talking about the daily walk of confession and repentance because you see, all of us are unworthy, but we're worthy now because we've been washed. If we're a Christian like Peter, we're already bathed. But we need to get our feet washed every once in a while, don't we? More often than we want to admit. That's what's going on here. A nun worthy manner is our attitude needs to be adjusted. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about sinless perfection. God forbid. It's the last thing we want to hear. And he doesn't say you'll be condemned, but he says you will be disciplined. And we'll speak about that as we go along, but I, I really want you to understand this. No one's worthy. Christ makes us worthy by the washing by His blood. Amen? Yes. Please let's all understand that. You will never feel worthy. I can tell you now. You'll never feel worthy. I'll never feel worthy. But we are because what Christ has done. He wants us to deal with the unworthy attitude that needs to be adjusted. And we'll speak about that as we go along. 
Our focus will be more on the problem in Corinth's communion along with God's presiding over it as the jealous God. Let's not forget that. Then with the communion service itself, because we spoke with the, about communion last week, so I'm not going to speak about that again, so I'll just speak about it in passing. Uh, verses 17 to 22, I'm going to read it again and then make some comments on it. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, as a family, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine or approved among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you, have, do you not have houses to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. What's going on in this church is that they're gathering for their weekly service. Usually in the early church, with the service would be called something a love feast. And I spoke about this last week. It was a, it was a feast. It was a sort of potluck dinner. If most churches in the first century was more a house church, somebody who was in the church who was affluent, somebody who was wealthy, who had a big enough house, would invite the people over for a Christian service. And most of the time people would bring food and sometimes the owner of the house would supply the food. But the thing about it is that the wealthy were coming first because they didn't have to work. And they were getting there early. And they were eating all food. And they were drinking all the wine. So when the other Christians came who were, you know, day laborers, they were slaves, they were tinkers, they were gypsies by day, they, they sold their things, they sold their wares, their, you know, their odd jobs, and they would come at the end of the day, and when they got there, guess what? There's no food, because the wealthy, who were there early, ate it all. Some of them are drunk. Paul wants to praise them because... The church is gathering in the name of Christ and coming around the table of Christ, but they're not participating in the unity of Christ. The rich and the affluent are looking down their nose on the poor and not even giving them the time of day. They've taken matters into their own hand. There's class warfare taking place. They're indifferent to the needs of the poor. And Paul says, can I commend this? This is supposed to be a gathering that's for the better. This is the time where Christians get together and, and the rich can look at the poor and say, is that what God is doing in your life? And the rich can say, they're God's poor. And at the same thing, the same time, the poor can say, look at that rich man, so humble, so filled with God. He's not like the other rich men that lorded over us. He's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. It's, it's refreshing to get around a rich man that's filled with the Spirit of God. That's, that was the mutual edification that should have been going on. And the rich should have said, wow, this poor man loves God and, and God loves him. He's God's poor. And it's, the, and it's the communion table that breaks down the socio-economic diversity and breaks down inferiority and superiority and it breaks these attitudes down so we can come together and all realize that we're all part of 
the same body. We're different members, many members, but we're all part of the same body. We all need each other. The foot needs the hand, the hand needs the foot, the toe needs the finger. We all need one another. God shows no partiality. But that's not what was happening. The rich and the affluent didn't think twice about the poor and the needy in the church. So we can see that their understanding of communion was not what Jesus taught in John chapter 13, that's for sure, about each person washing his neighbor's feet and so being like his Lord because the teacher and the student is not greater than the teacher, neither is the slave greater than the master. If you saw me do this to you, if you saw me wash your feet, you ought to, uh, you ought to wash each other's feet. Blessed are you if you know these things and you do them. That's communion. That's not what was happening. It wasn't for their better. At the end, there was animosity, there was pride, there was separation, there was hunger, there was drunkenness, it was out of control. I want to make a comment on verse 19. For there must be divisions or factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. It's an interesting verse of scripture. And it teaches a basic principle that all biblical writers know from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God even redeems these trying times within the life of the church to show that those who are walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh. It, it stands for the tares and the wheat in the church. Paul is letting them know, you'll know who's walking in the Spirit of God by how they live. Jesus says you'll know them by fruits. It's all it is. It's a principle. It's always there. That's what Paul is commenting on. Verses 23 to 26, I won't read it, but that's the communion formula that we have, that Paul gives us. And just to let you know, communion is not spoken about first in the Gospels. The first time in the New Testament communion is spoken about, it's in this chapter right here. This is written 20, 25 years before any Gospel was put together. This is the first time it's actually commented on in New Testament Scripture. 1 Corinthians written long before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's interesting because it gives us a, a sort of, why is Paul teaching on it? Because it's, it's more didactic, it's, it's informative, it's teaching, it's, it's correction. He's using it to correct a bad attitude about the communion table. So he pulls it out and says, no, this is what it's about. How important it is. It's a proper understanding of communion. Paul shows us with great pastoral, listen, forbearance. Instead of putting the fear of God first, he could have done that because that's what verses 30 and 31 teach us. If we don't judge ourselves rightly, God will judge us. Every time we come to communion, judgment's going on. We're either taking a good examination of ourselves, and if not, then God will step in. It's always going on. He brings them face to the face with something else. The somber evening of Christ's betrayal. He could have easily said, Brothers and sisters, let me remind you that the new covenant was instituted on that night. 
He could have said on that night, all sins were blotted out and thrown as far as the east is from the west. But he doesn't. He says the night he was betrayed. A hush should come over the crowd. A hush should come over the congregation when they hear about the Lord of life being betrayed. It catches their attention. And always understand this. Theology, proper understanding, is always the first line of defense against all misconduct. Always. Proper understanding. Because to the pure, what? All things are pure. Theology, doctrine, proper understanding is always the first line of defense. And that's what Paul does here succinctly in verses 23 to 26. Let's move over to 27 to 33. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we, but if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In these verses, Paul takes advantage of the situation and gets behind the scene. The scene is what I just described before. It's a, a socio-economic rich, rich against the poor dynamic. It's, it's the haves against the have-nots. That's what's going on here. From the outside in, that, that's what it would look like. But you see, Paul knows better. There's something more sinister going on. It's not just about, I'm rich, you're poor, I'm here early. He who hesitates is... You're lost. If you get here early, you can get something to eat. No, no, no. Paul is dealing with something much deeper than this. And he brings them face to face with the inner spiritual perceptions and attitudes of the heart. God is always at work at the root of the problem. Our Christian religion does not deal with symptoms. It deals with the root of the problem of life. And it's man thinking he's better than other men. And it's man taking the place of God. It is human pride. And Paul is going to lay the axe to the root. There's a spiritual principle found here. In the words unworthily, discern, and examine. I will read this and then explain it. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Here is the principle with unworthy, discern, and examine. It goes like this. Unworthy means a nonchalant attitude, no big deal approach to the body and the blood of Christ. It's just a ritual. It's just mechanical. It's no big deal. It means nothing to me. I, I don't consider it. I don't reflect on it. I don't meditate on it. It, it, it. it means nothing to me. I've got 
It really doesn't touch my life, doesn't affect my life. That's an unworthy attitude. Remember, this is about not being worthy or unworthy. This is about dealing with an unworthy attitude. This is about an attitude adjustment of understanding that God presides over the communion for a very specific reason. And that this unworthy, this nonchalant, it's no big deal approach, listen, comes from this. Not properly discerning. Now discerning in the Greek is almost a, a, a judicial word. It means this. It means to understanding through examination and evaluation. It means to come to a place of a deep conviction that's either yes or no. By studying and examining the evidence. So when he says you're not discerning, it's because you have not thought through the death of Christ and the gospel. You're not discerning the Bible. You're not discerning Christ and what he's all about. You're not discerning Good Friday. You're not discerning. You're not examining. You're not evaluating. You're not coming to a deep conviction in your heart about who Jesus is and what he has done. Don't miss that. This is no simple word of a simple reflection. It is deep evaluating. This is soul searching. What he is saying is this. What does Jesus mean to you? Jesus uses this a couple of times in the book of Matthew. One time he uses it in 16.3. It's a familiar one when he's told the Pharisees, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret, that means discern, the signs of the time. We say it like this, red, red sky at night, sail is delay. Red sky in morning, You've discerned. You know, you've examined something to draw a conclusion. That's what Paul is saying. You never drew a deep conclusion of who Jesus Christ is. You never drew a deep conclusion on his suffering. You never drew a deep conclusion on his betrayal. You've never come to a place of personal conviction on the greatest event that has ever taken place on planet earth the crucifixion of God's only son and because of that lack of discernment you have an unworthy attitude and the fruit of all this is a lack of self-examination When a proper discernment of Christ is birthed in a believer, a deep conviction, it begins to be accompanied with a proper evaluation of one's self in relationship with the rest of the body of Christ. Whether we're rich or whether we're poor. Whether we're famous or whether we're not famous. Whether we're infamous or whatever makes no difference. When a proper discernment of Christ is birthed in a believer, it begins to be accompanied by a proper Evaluation of oneself in relation to the rest of the body of Christ and all our interpersonal relationships. This is what it means. A believer who is growing in Christ 
cannot easily let inner attitudes against other Christians go unchecked. To do that is not to properly discern who Jesus is all about. Do we need to remind each other that Jesus says, we ask you to forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? Do not judge, lest you be judged. When my inner attitudes are reflecting contempt towards another Christian, when my inner attitudes are reflecting a hostility, a malice, or a slander and gossip towards another Christian, I am telling the world, I'm telling God, I haven't discerned who Jesus Christ is really. Who is Jesus to me? Has he not touched my life? Has he not touched my behavior? And now I'm going to take communion? Let me put it another way. How can I properly evaluate the body of Christ if I'm missing who the head of the body is? If I can't evaluate the foundation of the Christian faith, if I can't properly discern and study out and come to a deep conviction in my own soul of who Jesus Christ is, the cornerstone and foundation of the Christian faith, Everything eventually breaks down. So Paul is saying this. The reason it's a mess is because you haven't discerned the body yet. You're still mixed up and confused about who Jesus Christ is. And the only thing that can happen after that is of course you're going to be struggling with inner attitudes. Of course you're going to be struggling with the rich against the poor. Of course you're going to be struggling with pride. Because when you properly understand who Jesus is, it crushes the man of pride. Understand something. Grace crushes human pride without stealing our dignity. But it also elevates us without inflating our egos. How important that is. Because now, we can properly discern the body of Christ. This is why Paul says something in verse 30. He says, that is why. It's almost like a light went off to Paul. And I'll explain how this works out. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I mean, that's a scary thought. I want to ask you this. Was that just a temporary thing? Or is that principle still alive today, 2,000 years later? Well, it's yes and no. I'll explain it as we go along. We all want it to be no. <laughs> but when I get the application, I'll speak about it. But let me, let me just say a couple of things here. Paul is writing this letter because he heard a report from people called Chloe's people. Chloe was a believer. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says, I heard from Chloe's people that there are divisions among you. The whole letter of Corinthians is written because Paul heard something that was going on in the church. He birthed for almost two years. He preached day and night. He birthed this church. He knew what was going on. It was a healthy church when he was there. 
Now all of a sudden he's getting a report that there's, there's divisions. Some people are following Paul, some people are following Peter, some people are following Apollos, some people are following Christ. Uh, there's, there's a man there, he's sleeping with his stepmother and having sex and no one's rebuking him, no one's correcting him. There's two Christians going at it in the court of law. There's no discerning believer within the church to speak life to them. There's other people in the church promoting uh, sleeping with prostitutes, that grace covers that. And Paul has to remind them, well, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He gives them instructions on marriage. He has to correct, no, you don't, Christians don't go to idols and worship at idols and feast and then come and eat at the, the Lord's table. He corrects women and head cover and he, he, he speaks about modesty. He's speaking about correcting this over here at the Lord's Supper. He corrects people who are teaching there's no resurrection in chapter 15. He's speaking to those people in chapter 12, 13, and 14 who can, they're tongue crazy. They're speaking in tongues constantly that they don't make no sense and people aren't coming to the church anymore because he'd rather have five discerning words than 10,000 in a tongue. The church is an absolute mess. <laughs> So he takes a step back and he goes, now I know why people are dying. Now I know why people are sick. Now I know why people are weak. They're a mess. And they're taking the Lord's table when it's supposed to be a time of deep fellowship, deep sincerity, deep humility, of mutual edification, and they are killing each other. Does that make sense? That's what's happening. So Paul comes to a conclusion. Now, I know why the reports people are dying, untimely. Now I know why there's so much sickness. Now I know why so many people are weak. Because you're not properly discerning who Christ is. We better get the application. There are timeless truths that were true then and they're true today. When it comes to the application of this text, this is very important. It sets the whole tone to what's going on here. Only we personally are qualified to evaluate ourselves. That's important. Paul is not deputizing some people to stand in judgment of other people's afflictions. He's not telling the minister, he's not telling the elders, you know, go study everybody's affliction, go see if they're in sin. It's not what he's saying. This is a self-evaluation. And such is Christianity. People need to be extremely sensitive in this area. Very, very sensitive. Discerning Christ and truly understanding the gospel. How is the only way we can really gauge where we stand here? How we gauge our understanding of the gospel, I want you to listen to this. Close your eyes. How we gauge our personal understanding of the gospel is not by writing a lecture, a report, or a sermon. We gauge our understanding by living life out in the local church. That's how we gauge our understanding. It's not how much we can quote of Jesus or Paul or anybody else. It's 
how my relationship is in the local church with other Christians. That's how we gauge personally. I don't gauge you. You don't gauge me. It's between me and God. It's self-evaluating. I want to ask you a question. Most applications tonight is going to be with a question. Can we really come to believe that God is watching the local church, that God is watching communion, and that God is watching all our inner attitudes, and that He's concerned? I want you to think about it. I can come to that conclusion. Paul says that when Jesus Christ comes, He's going to come and judge the motives and intentions of men's heart and set everything right. God has jurisdiction over the heart. You know, just to pull something out of... Uh, contemporary politics and what happened in, in Florida. They tried to discern by evaluating whether a man's heart was prejudiced or not to come up with a sort of premeditated, and I don't, I'm not asking where we all stand on this, but the point is that human beings have the power to bring into account the intentions of a person's heart in a criminal case. How much more God? How much more God? How much more God to come into our life and say, you know something, the reason you snubbed that person and the reason you were eating and drinking and not being concerned for the poor and not being concerned for the outcast is because your heart is not right. You have not discerned the body of Christ. You think more highly of yourself than you do of the poor. Let me state this. God has every right and will watch us because he loves us. That's why. He radically, radically, radically loves us. So yes, God does watch over the local church and God does watch over our inner attitudes. Here's another question. Can we be mature enough to think possibly that my sickness and my spiritual weakness are a result of sin in my heart? Can I possibly think that my sickness and suffering and weakness is because of inner attitudes, ill inner attitudes I have towards other Christians? Can we be mature enough to think that? I tell you right now, when I have a prolonged period of suffering in my life, I go right to the Lord and say, God, is this sin in my life? Is this something you did? That's the, it's all self-evaluating, saints. Self-evaluating. I have to come to a place in my life and say, God is there. God's not, God wants me to know because he wants to deal with sin in my heart. And that's how Christians do it. Christians should not be scared to say, you know something? Maybe God has inflicted me because he wants to deal with something in my heart. Now, before we take that and become hypersensitive and beat ourselves to death over it, we've got to make sure that James says the same thing in James chapter 5, starting in verse 15, 16. He says, If anyone among you is sick, let them call for the elders of the church. They will come and anoint your head with oil, and the prayer of faith will heal you. And if there is sin, because there would have been an evaluation by the elders who are sensitive to God, they're the mature ones. They, they can love a sinner without judging the, the sinner. They can see that. They, they can love the saint. They can evaluate, not hold the sin against them. That's what elders are supposed to do. They're mature in Christ. They, they, can, they can catch someone in a transgression and be gentle enough to restore them, as Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. 
and the sin will be forgiven. So let me just tell you this. Yes, it is very possible that God can chastise us with sickness, illness, weakness, and other things to get our attention so we just simply and humbly come to Him and say, God, be merciful to me and help me. That's one. So yes, that's a real living dynamic that all Christians need to be sensitive to and that all elders and pastors and ministers have to be extraordinarily sensitive to when it comes to this because it is a, a very real possibility. Okay, let's move on. Do we have an approach, do we approach life with an attitude of the have and the have-nots? Do we come to church and is everybody my brother and my sister? Listen, verse 19, I heard there were factions amongst you. I heard there were cliques amongst you. That's what it means. It means a clique. It's not a sect. A sect is someone outside of Christianity. They've separated from Christianity. They teach heresy. A faction is a clique within Christianity. They hold on to true Orthodox Christianity, but they're cliques. We, they gather together, but we stay over here, and we stay over here, and, well, you know something, you know, you don't look like me, you smell a little bit, you don't dress like me, and, you know, and we gravitate towards the four people we like, and what we do, we disown everybody else. Because basically, you're a have-not. You know, you, you don't offer me anything. Doesn't Paul teach us in Romans chapter 12, I think it's verse 9, to make sure you associate with the lowly in the church. Those who have nobody. Make sure you fellowship with the have-nots. They're beaten up by the world enough. Don't let them come to church and be beat up. They're lonely. That's why we have fellowship, Paul said. That's why we have communion. Let's all come together and encourage one another while we see the day approaching. Let's, let's help one another. Let's wash one another. Let's confess one to one another. Let's have testimony of how good God is in our life. Let's, let, let nobody come to church and leave emotionally hungry. Do we approach life with an attitude of the have and the have-nots? Whatever our answers might have been tonight, the antidote is the same. Confession and partaking in communion. Don't want you to miss this. Because who is qualified? Is communion a time of self-loathing and destructive self-analysis? Or is it a time for inner revelation about our potential blind spots? That brings us to sorrow. Doesn't Paul say that godly sorrow leads to repentance? Coming to the Lord's Supper is not a time of destructive introspection where we load ourselves for our failures, but it's a time of healthy introspection. Sorry. My notes are all messed up. It's a time of healthy introspection where we reapply. Please, this is communion. It's a time of healthy introspection where we reapply the blood of Jesus Christ to our life and to our souls. And we humbly ask and thankfully ask Christ to again wash our feet. That's communion. 
We're not worthy. We all struggle with inner attitudes. We all struggle with a have a have not. We all struggle with pride. We all struggle with interpersonal relationships. We all have that. But that's what communion is. It's because I know I have it. I know I need to take communion. I'm not perfect yet. It's wonderful. And it's in this process that God can deal a death blow to sin, pride, and weakness. Let me read this as I close before we partake. A German theologian in the 1500s struggled with this very question. Who's worthy? And after much introspection and pondering on the scriptures, he came to this conclusion. He says this. Those who can come are those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned by Christ and that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Only hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. After a brief and honest reflection, that's all it takes. God asks no one to be perfect. Christ is perfect. Let us reflect. Ask for forgiveness. And then partake. I'm going to ask the ushers to come up as we partake. And I'm going to ask people to... Stay around today and come upstairs and fellowship with us.